This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist for playwriting. She is also an author, an essayist, a poet, and a professor at the Yale School of Drama. She has 15 plays produced on and off Broadway. She explains why it isn't very cozy to sit down and read a play. She introduces me to the concept of title diagnosis, and she shares stories from her book, Smile, the Story of a Face. Waiting in the Wings is the distinguished American playwright and rule breaker, Sarah Rule. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery. Of creativity. La, 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 la. La, 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 Hi, nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you too. This is a podcast that I created out of need to connect with creative people. Mm-hmm. And so I could make play dates with whoever I want. And this is a proper play date with a playwright. <laughs> Excellent. So let me jump into something maybe from your youth. Did you start out as a kid that wanted to put on a show or did you start out as a kid with writing poetry and that sort of thing? That's such a good question. I mean, a little of both, but I think I would tend toward being the kid who wanted to write poetry. I've always wanted to be a writer of some kind and was always squirreling poetry away. But I did write a play in fourth grade that was a court drama about land masses. <laughs> I think we were studying land masses in Mr. Spangenberger's fourth grade class. And I, I really felt the need to write a courtroom drama where there was a talking isthmus and a talking sun that came down and solved things. So that never got put on, but I, I was thinking about putting things on. And my mom's an actress in Chicago, so I was always going to the theater and was around the theater from a young age. Oh, that's funny. My start was not so much about having something to say, which it sounds like you did. Mine was more about getting a reaction. Get all the neighborhood kids together and reenact Gilligan's Island. Whatever we could do where we could get people laughing or doing something, it took me a lot longer to learn to have something to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did do some of that with neighborhood kids. I remember I had one friend and we loved Mad Magazine. And every month I would get the Mad Magazine where you would fold the cover in half to get the second picture. Yeah. And sometimes we would take the cartoon section, the stuff that looks sort of like a graphic novel, and we would put that on for other neighborhood friends. That pull-out page was really a great way to build imagination. We used to draw those too, where we would fold a page, draw something, and then emulate that. And what you could draw in the center was crazy imaginative expansion of tearing a body apart or whatever you were doing. I think that game was made up by some of the early surrealists who would do it as a parlor game, like a little parlor trick, fold paper in half or 
have dangled the neck off and have someone begin that as another line, but you didn't know what was on the other side of it. Well, I think that's one of the great things at Disneyland when the room stretches and the hallway shows sort of the macabre death of the various people who seem to be walking a tight wire or something of that nature. So it does something to our imagination as an audience. And you're sort of an expert at engaging an audience and taking them on a journey. Uh, playwriting to me and poetry as well are the most complicated and sophisticated of the writing because it's, it's so thoughtful. So what was your attraction to dramatizing your work as opposed to having it stay as poetry? Well, it's interesting. I think if I hadn't met the right teacher at the right time, I would have stayed firmly in poetry. And I met a teacher, Paula Vogel, who's also obviously an incredible writer at Brown. And she sort of pulled me over to the dark side. But it's interesting that I just turned 48 and I'm coming out with a second book of poetry coming up called Love Poems in Quarantine, which is not unlike creativity and captivity this way. But, you know, it took me 28 years in a way to write two books of poetry, but I never stopped writing the poems. And I think the plays I think of as sort of three-dimensional poems, but I just think I wouldn't have had the bravery to set on that course had I not met Paula. Mm -hmm. Well, Paula's quite an accomplished writer, and I read a few quotes of hers. Playwriting isn't a calling so much as it is a hazing process. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like you get into it and now you got to get out of it. It's quite a bit to do. It can be brutal, particularly in New York. There's a brutality in show business, as I'm sure you know. The, the poet side of me really doesn't like that part of it. Well, I also read something that she said about it sounds like art is a thrill ride in her view, that the art is the writer not having control, but the subject having control of the writer. So when you choose a subject, it seems like something you have to ride to the finish. Yeah, I do. I think it works on you. It acts on you. And I think that I also studied with a teacher named Maria Irene Fornes, and she was very much about letting the characters speak and conjuring their voices and then following where they lead and not manipulating the characters like they're puppets. And that's the way I teach too, that you kind of hopefully get an image or hear the voice or hear a fragment of dialogue, and then it takes you over. Yeah. I also remember reading something that you said about playwriting as sort of as close to a schizophrenic act as anything, which is that you have all these voices in your head. So you're doing that as a writer, but you're also a mother and you have other voices going on outside the room. How do you manage the balance of that? It's not always easy. I mean, the kids are a little bit older now. My twins are almost 12 and my oldest girl is 15. So they can do many things on their own, including vacuum and walk to school. But when they were really little and couldn't even, you know, get a glass of water for themselves, it was pretty constant state of interruption. And at the time I didn't have an outside office. I would try to work at home and it was nearly impossible. And I ended up writing a book called a hundred essays. I don't have time to write which it's a fantastic book, by the way. Thank you. I never knew it would be a book. I just really was trying to preserve my mental sanity by trying to remember thoughts and writing them down. And suddenly I had 10 and then I had 12. And then I thought, maybe there's, I think it was when I had 50 or so, I thought maybe there's a book in this. And I thought, let me keep going till I get to 75. And then I thought, 
let me keep going until I get 100. And now I can finally think in long form again. But but when the twins were really little, I think until the age of three, I really couldn't. Essays is a great way, though. This is good for our listener who might be struggling with what are they going to do with a long narrative. And particularly, unfortunately, in the time and generation, longer form narratives are harder to come by because more people are sizing down the content they create, whether it's limited number of characters for Twitter or doing something for some TikTok. Like everybody's thinking small, bite-sized pieces. And it really is, I believe, the stable of playwrights is fairly empty of people who are headed that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's as though our, our drinks just keep getting bigger and our attention spans keep getting smaller. <laughs> we keep doing things in little chunks and it's harder to imagine something in time that's Tolstoy in scope. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine War and Peace getting written today. Yeah. Well, unless it's written over text over a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> In your book of essays, there was a moment where I read a line that said the importance of knowing nothing is underrated. And I wonder why that is, why you say the importance of knowing nothing is underrated. I think we live in this culture of expertise and opinion, and we're supposed to know what we think, and we're supposed to know what we think based on what other people think, and we're supposed to be informed. And some days I feel like I want to be beyond opinion, beyond even knowing what I think about something so that I have a chance to wonder. Ah, that's the key word, to wonder, right? To not be relying on the past, not be living in the fear of the future, but being in the present and exploring what's around you, changing your perspective, looking a different direction. Yeah, I don't think a lot of that is happening, and I don't want to blame the cell phone for everything. (laughs) But I do think it's changed our constitution, like our sense of our temperament, our attention. I mean, I do think we're kind of like little cyborgs already with our phones. Yeah. I mean, first of all, being bored is not an option. We don't think, right? So we're constantly, even in line, we're texting somebody or planning something. And so you don't have that free fall period of wondering, what do we do? What am I going to do with this thing? Even straying around looking for a thought. I think it's terrible for the imagination and for mine too. I mean, I, I used to be someone who loved a long bath and I still like a long bath, but I have my phone often and I'm reading the New York Times on my phone in the bath. It's almost like being fully immersed in water is a last refuge of the imagination, like swimming or going to the theater where you have to have your phone off. But it's rare the place where you're really expected to have it off for two hours. Yeah, that's a great observation. I don't want to sleep with my cell phone, but it's right there. So if I do wake up and I need a moment, I used to pick up a book and now I'm like the curious idea what Christmas present was left for me by somebody. Like that constant sense that something's being delivered to the house. Yeah, I agree. And I think of it as, you know, my kids are in the on-demand generation in terms of attention. Like they can get any show they want at any moment. They don't have to wait a week for most shows. They don't have to wait for. So there's not that sense of anticipation or that sense of free time. The half hour before your favorite show starts, it just starts when you want it to start. Yeah, that's really good. The other thing that I think is funny is... It's the same with food. It's the same with everything. I'm in the mood for it. It comes to me. It makes everybody the king at every minute. And and I feel like that the device makes you feel like you're running your own network and your own studio. I'm going to program my music, but it's built into our society. So people wait in line momentarily at Starbucks, but when they get to the front and they start to reel off their very specific half-calf thing, latte, what they suddenly take charge of the whole place. 
Yeah, it's like we're king of our own little moment, even as we're paying attention to nothing. But these individualized choices we have, it's capitalism sort of refining and refining and refining what the individual has so that the individual feels sated. But it's not very satisfying. It's not, but I think it confuses people. I think they think they have more control and they think they have more connection. And in some ways they're getting more done. But I can't remember, I was talking to somebody else about all of this stuff is put into a device where your camera and your record player and your typewriter and all of those things that used to be emotional escapes. Oh, I go sit with my stereo and I play. Well, now you have it all at all times all around you. Yeah. And you think, oh, I'm picking my music. I'm taking my picture. But you become kind of enslaved in updating everybody. Right. Send them a picture of it. And Is it Thoreau who said we become tools of our own tools? That's where we're at with our iPhones. The iPhones are running us. And we, ah. we think we're running them, but they're running us. I know. I equate it to a pacemaker when you talk to somebody and their battery's dying. It's like they're dying. They're like, I, I, I don't know. I don't have the strength. I, I, I my last final words. <laughs> yeah, I know. I do. It's the same impact as electricity had, however many years ago. It's that seismic shift in our culture. Well, it brings me to one of your play titles, "Dead Man's Cell Phone." It's a great title. I was in Manhattan not too long ago, and I went back to the uh, dramatist's store there. Great. The new one, right? It's great. It's open. It's so wonderful. It's so great that it's open for so many reasons, yeah. but revived by such folks that are great stewards of theater and love all of that. So I knew that we were going to talk, and so I went in there, and I thought, this is a great way to support them and pick up some books. But I'm a fan of titles. Titles meaning something. And Dead Man's Cell Phone, I thought, I'm intrigued already. I don't know what happens. I don't know who dies. I don't know what's on that phone. But to me, that's the essence of an invitation to go to a play, which I find frustrating when I go to a museum and the art's on the wall and you walk by five paintings that say untitled. I just want to go, were you thinking nothing? <laughs> and an artist did give me a perspective that they want you to bring to it your story or your emotion or something, but I kind of want a clue. Right. When I teach playwriting, I often think that when a student is having trouble finding a title, it's partly that they're having trouble finding the play. They can't find sort of the bullseye of the play. I mean, I don't mean to compliment myself, but I'm pretty good at coming up with titles, even for other people's work. Titles just kind of come to me. I feel like there is a kind of title diagnosis when the title isn't quite right. It's also that the larger whole is missing a kind of focus. And part of me loves the idea of luxury of being able to write an untitled play, but it just would be very hard to sell tickets for. I think so. And you can humble brag about that because it is something that I try to be diplomatic and sensitive to the person who writes something because I always, I don't want to rename their baby, but I also want to tell them if you want this to be commercial in the marketplace, the person who buys the ticket has to want to pay money. And that all begins with the graphic, the title, the description. And oftentimes in theater, they don't get much of a setup. <laughs> So I always think it's funny that you can feel like the person who bought the play or commissioned the play knows what it is, but that person never talks to the audience member. They never talk to the ticket buyer. So that person calls the theater and says, what's this play about? And the person who answers, who's a volunteer says, I don't know, it's supposed to be good. And that's the end of the conversation, right? So if it's a comedy and you can indicate it, if you have a tagline that's got some mystery in it, that to me, it's super important. If you're going to be a clever person, start being clever with the title. 
Well, it's funny that you say that about calling on the phone and asking for tickets. Many people do it online now, but I remember when my play Eurydice was in Germany, in German, it's pronounced Eurydike, which I just thought was so funny. <laughs> I was thinking of an American calling and thinking the title was Eurydike, which I mean, I'd happily write a play called that too, but it was not this play. Did it help ticket sales? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> And they made it like, you know, two hours long and they, you know, everyone was wearing clown makeup. So it was like that. And it was an opera, right? It recently was an opera. That that German version was just a play, but I made it into an opera with a composer, Matthew O'Coin, who's really wonderful. And we put it on at the Met this fall, which was so wonderful to finally be back live. And it was right between Delta and Omicron. So we kind of, you know, slid in. It was really a wonderful experience. Oh, I'm sure it must have felt great to not only be gathering with the audience, but to hear that the audience doesn't know how much they miss each other. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I feel like what we mentioned about cell phones makes us feel when people are downloading and binging, they really think they're getting an experience. But when you hear other people laughing or crying or breathing or gasping, you have a totally different experience. And that's really been absent for two years. It's magical. And it's like, I think of that book, Bowling Alone, about our culture and how people are so lonely. And that was written a while back. And that was before the time, I think, even where, and even in a household, we watch alone. And I say that not to be holier than now, because a lot, a lot of times my kids will be watching separate things on their little devices because they want to watch what they want to watch. So you have a household of people can't even control a household watching together and having the shared experience of a story moving through time together. Whereas in my house growing up, you know, in the 80s, there was one TV show on Thursday nights. It was Cheers and you all watched together. So it was a way of engaging in story, but also a way of being together. And I think that kind of manipulation of people's interests and desires so that they think they need to be constantly individually gratified and see what they want to see. I think... I mean, I, I don't mean to speculate, but people are so depressed right now. Like it, we're in such a pandemic of mental health. And I know it's partly isolation and many, many other factors, but I think that's one of them is what the technology of the phone has done to our sense of being together. Yeah. And I, I love when it happens, when the aha happens, when my son was young, he used to do puzzles. He was kind of an amazing puzzler as a kid. We were always playing Beatles music and he called it puzzling music because it was going on, but he loved the Beatles. And so when you have an artist connection with a different generation, and now he's quite a music dude, right? Like he's got a good playlist. And so when we're driving on a road trip, he's like, hey, you want to listen to my playlist? And he has no idea. They're all songs I love. 60s, 70s, whatever. He's introducing me to stuff that I went to concerts as a kid. And I was like, oh, this is a pretty good idea. You know, it's like, and he tells me about the person. So that is a really powerful moment. And I think it's similar with couples, with anybody who has gone about their life in the singular path of entertaining themselves, realizing that you're sitting somewhere where there's a common denominator. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Having a common denominator, watching the moon landing, like the whole culture watching that at the same time, for instance. You mentioned the translation of that title, but you've had 15 plays produced and in 14 other languages I read. So how does that feel? And one of a few of the more obscure languages, and did you see those productions or do you just get a report back of how they went? 
I haven't seen them. The only one I've seen in another language was Eurydice in Germany. And I think that experience was so alienating that I decided not to go again. But also I think the plays getting done internationally coincided with my burgeoning motherhood. So I didn't want to travel really without the kids. I also feel like once the play leaves your hands, there's an amount of letting go you do in a first production, then the second production. And then once it's translated into another language, it's another kind of letting go. And if you're not involved in the translation or in the process in any way, shape, or form, it's possible you'll be delighted by a whole production. It's possible you'll be thrilled. It's also possible you'll be misunderstood and it will be alienating. So I kind of prefer to let people have it. It's their playground for the moment. And if I'm not involved in the making of it, I don't want to feel outside of it like an onlooker. Well, that's a healthy approach because I wonder if you see one along the way that's finished and been produced, and then you have this 10% better idea, and, and then you end up always just recycling that concern over that one play. Yeah, no, I kind of let them go. But they have been translated into some fun languages, Polish, Korean, Chinese, Arabic. It looked like a number of productions were done in Turkish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be wild, I think. Not so much seeing it, but not understanding the words and watching the blocking of a show and going, what, what is this show? feels familiar. Well, and that was a really interesting thing about Eurydice because the actress playing Eurydice was so wonderful. I could tell she was a wonderful actress. And because she was so emotionally astute, I felt like I knew where she was in the punctuation at every moment. Where some of the actors I knew, I knew where they were generally, but she, I knew exactly where she was, even though I don't speak German. And was that a adaptation or was that original from Whole Cloth? It was an original play based on the myth of Eurydice, but because, I mean, it's really called the myth of Orpheus, but because we don't know much about Eurydice and there's no extant play about Orpheus, you're really making it up out of, out of whole cloth and it's contemporary. And the play really ends up being a love triangle between Eurydice, who goes to the underworld, and Orpheus, who stays behind, you know, singing love songs to her. And then Eurydice's father, who's teaching Eurydice to remember her life in the Underworld. So by the time Orpheus makes it down to bring her back, Eurydice is not sure whether she wants to go. And that's sort of the way my play differs from the original text. Well, I heard it was quite an extraordinary production from a mutual friend, Susan Stroman. Wow, Stroh. Stroh is awesome. And she, when I told her that we were talking, she paid you a compliment and said that Sarah Rule lights up a room with humor and intelligence which makes for inspiring collaboration. Oh, that is so nice. Well, I feel the same about her. And the two of you are working on a project now. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it or not, but it sounds pretty amazing, the fact that these two minds come together with so much theatrical experience. Well, I've always admired her so much. And I think I can say that we're working on a Baroque kind of opera together and that I'm writing the libretto. How do you and Stro know each other? We met on this podcast cool. <laughs> several episodes back, but have become friends. And I love her sense of humor. And there's something, it's kind of like we all fought in the same war. So we don't have to talk about every battle. <laughs> there's a knowing look of a soldier that's been through it. I also love her producers so much. Mel Brooks has always been a real hero of mine. And I think it's rare actually in theater to find somebody who both has a kind of subtlety, but also like a Borscht Belt sense of humor. And I think that's one thing that's amazing about Susan Stroman. Not to mention the fact that she tells story through movement because of being a choreographer. She's very, very smart about how the scenery moves because that also is part of what she choreographs. But having that sense of humor on top of it makes her, I hate the term triple threat, but she has a full toolkit of things 
that come into play and she doesn't rely on any one thing. And when you said that you and Stroh had been through similar battles, are you referring to being in the world of TV writing or? No, I mean, I don't consider any of it a real war because it's a harmless comic folly that we're on here. Dealing with boards, dealing with investors, dealing with networks, studios, that's what makes it a war. The art, playwriting is difficult enough. Collaborating is something that requires a lot of diplomacy and a lot of grace because we're not always right. We are birthing babies with other people. And in storytelling, which all of this is, sometimes the editor on a movie or a TV show is your best friend. They make it even more tight and show reactions instead of dialogue. And all of that is awesome. And you learn from it. The people who are selling cornflakes, for example, on television, they're in a different business. They're in the advertising business. And what we do, writing a story, just gets in the way of selling commercials. So then they dictate, oh, you're going to have to have an act break because we got Wheaties and we've got this thing to sell. We're going to do some Nike stuff. That's how we make our money. Then they begin to say, you have to cast this way because this person will get more eyes. And we need to put this on around the Super Bowl because that's when more people, like it's kind of a competing notion of art and commerce. And do you feel like that's changing at all now that you have Amazon and Netflix and streaming shows where you don't have commercials formally break up the thing in that same way? I do think it's changing things. And I think it's changing in this way. They're giving a more auteur sense to a director or writer or producer with some clout, where instead of every show, the threat of you're going to be canceled, they let you make a whole season. And because of humans developing this tendency to binge, they figure if it's good, they'll swallow 13 of these shows in four days, which I can't imagine, you know? As a kid, you would have to wait, and then you'd have to wait until the next fall for it to start again. I watched three seasons of Succession when I had Omicron in like three days, which I want to write an essay about because I loved the show, but I started to feel sicker and sicker just morally after three days. You know, and my body was getting better, but my soul was starting to feel sickened by both watching that much TV, but also watching characters with that amount of moral turpitude. But that's a writer. I mean, I think that showrunner is a real writer and the characters are incredible. And it tells us a lot about what it was like living under the Trump administration for four years. Yeah, that's how I felt with House of Cards. And when I was watching even two back to back, I felt <laughs> creepy. Somebody would get pushed out on a track or something would happen. And I would go, am I in some way encouraging this by wanting to watch more of it? And then as the world became more uh, like House of Cards, I couldn't even watch it. I just thought, well, this isn't even entertainment now. This is just frustrating news of bad people behaving badly. Right. Bad people behaving badly. Yeah. And I think maybe you can speak to this because you're in this world of writing. It does seem like so much effort is put into a dystopian view of things. Everything, when the kids were in school, they were reading Hunger Games. I'm not saying it's not interesting or entertaining and some of it isn't done really well. But it feels like we're in search for creating conflict. We're just heightening this dour sense of survival. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend about it who has kids. And he was saying he was sad and thinking about how his child might feel about the next 30 years, as opposed to how we felt when we were kids, imagining our future. I think it is a different sense of existential gloom. And I think a lot of it is climate change, but I can't even imagine what it's like for my kids, how they'll look back on this pandemic. I mean, I hope that there's some resilience that they have and some sense of we got through it, but it's a lot. 
Speaking of dour and doom, in plays, oftentimes death is a device that's used in playwriting to accelerate conflict or something of that nature. Have you found that in your own work that sometimes you have to create something for dramatic purpose to make it why now this story is being told? Yes and no. I mean, I feel like once I get excited by an idea, it will fuel me enough so that I'm not sort of having to add something to it. But I think the why now question is always really important to ask. I think the sort of Passover question, how is this night different than any other night is important to ask for any piece of art. But I guess maybe since I started as a poet too, I'm interested in writing whatever I'm feeling or thinking at the moment and sort of hoping that that's enough that I don't have to impose a larger structure on it for it to have importance. Well, sometimes a story tells you it's necessary. I, I was thinking of your play, The Clean House, and how this was one of your Pulitzer Prize finalist plays, but there was a doctor and it really accelerated the moment. Why is this play taking place at this time in the lives of these people? So that, I guess that's why where the question came from in my head. In terms of that play, The Clean House, I think the idea came to me just from an overheard scrap of conversation at a party where a doctor walked in and said, oh, it's been such a hard month. My cleaning lady from Brazil is depressed and she won't clean my house. And I took her to the hospital and I had her medicated and she still won't clean. And in the meantime, I've been cleaning my house and I didn't go to medical school to clean my own house. And I was like, oh my God, like the whole, like it just kind of wrote itself down in my head as a monologue. The idea that she would medicate her maid, the idea that she had no sense that anyone listening wouldn't think she was the hero of the story. <laughs> no, it's great. It's terrific. Ultimately, I'm going to encourage the listener to find some of your plays and read them. I find watching plays interesting, but I also find reading them to be a different kind of experience. And I don't think most people read plays. I don't think they've picked one up or seen the structure or understand what happens when you begin to imagine who everybody is. It kind of opens up the mind even more than a novel because you have to start assigning a, a thought of what that person looks like and what they sound like and what their tone is. It's very hard to read plays and we don't really encourage it. And I think because I started as a poet, it really matters to me how a play looks on the page. And I want to encourage a kind of readerly experience with my book so that it's not just blueprint for actors, but also for people reading. It's funny. I remember my daughter, Anna, who loved Harry Potter, love, 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 and like read them over and over again. She was inside of it. And then um, The Cursed Child came out in play form and she read it and she just she was so unhappy with the reading experience it, it felt like almost a violation to her i think that the form changed and there was a new authorial voice in it and also that the world wasn't complete but i think it's also just it can be it's a not cozy thing i think to read a play it's a cozy thing to read a novel it's even cozy to read a poem or an essay but it's not cozy to read a play because you know there are these other people that are supposed to be embodying it, but they're not with you. Whereas you know you're sort of complete unto yourself with you in the book. There's a kind of intimacy. Yeah. And also the, the amount of novelization is very comforting, which, which you discourage in screenwriting. You want action. You want to go from one scene to the next and see what's happening. But in a book, you're happy to hear what the fabric of the shirt is like, and you want to know what smells the toast is burning in the kitchen. In a movie, it's like, show me the burning toast or get it out of here. <laughs>
Yeah. Whenever I give notes on a screenplay and people say, be brutal, tell me, I go, look, I, I, there's no need to be brutal. If it's a good story, we'll talk about that. But if you're not writing efficiently for the reader, if you're telling me things that are happening in the heads of the people that I can't ever see in a movie, it's a very visual medium. I want to see it. So show somebody pointing a gun at somebody. Don't say he's thinking of picking up the gun. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how to show that on the face of a guy. Yeah. I forget. Do you, are you teaching these days? I'm not teaching, but I have collaborated and done a lot of creative consulting on things. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting the foundation right. Tell me as a teacher, what levels are you teaching and what kinds of classes? Well, I'm teaching mostly graduate students at Yale School of Drama, and then occasionally I'll, I'll teach an undergraduate course. Right now, I'm teaching a play called Ovid and Plays of Transformation. So we read Ovid's Metamorphoses and talk about mythology and transformation, and then they read plays that, in my view, have that same kind of structure of one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. There's a crazy transformation. There's magic. There's a song. There's a beast. There's a sudden transformation you, you don't expect. So it's very different from Aristotelian structure where a lot of people get taught playwriting or screenwriting where there's sort of a rising action and at least in Aristotle's view, there's a causality where plot comes from a flaw in a character. So it's sort of presenting an alternative way of writing a story to the to the students. Well, storytelling is so much more of our lives than people really understand. I mean, story itself, the word story has come into vogue in the last 10 years about corporations. What is our story? That sort of thing. But storytelling, there is a certain amount of salesmanship and a certain amount of sticking the dismount. And there's lots of elements. And I think human beings are innately good storytellers. If you don't tell them, tell me a story. If you listen to people at a Thanksgiving table, they know, they say, oh, the funniest thing happened to me on the way here. And I'm like, what, what? You know, they, they, they do it. But if you go, tell me a story about growing up, they go, they get panicky that telling a story has to be once upon a time. It's true. I mean, I have some Irish roots and certainly, you know, the Irish have the gift of gab and have a story at the ready for any possible occasion. I mean, my kids hate to be asked how their day was or did anything interesting happen. You know, it's like a way of completely shutting them down. But I do think how we understand our lives, how we understand the world, so much of it is through story. I really value a play, which, by the way, is like diminishing the amount of plays that are even done on Broadway and so forth. Musicals are great and fun and can take some place of it. But it's really maybe from a commercial standpoint, the playwright themselves isn't put on a pedestal because people who become good writers head towards the money, right? So that money is television. It's film. When radio, television and movies came in, playwriting just started to drop off. And subsequently, I, I don't even know, I didn't ever take a playwriting class. I took a class that allowed me to do some poetry, some prose, some playwriting, a little of everything. And I took that after I had been writing on sitcoms because I felt like I didn't know what I was doing at all. That's interesting. Yeah, I did it instinctually and I knew how to make things funny and I kind of knew how to tell stories, but I really felt like a fraud. And I had been writing sitcoms for five years. How did you get your first job? I had turned a play in with another, I had co-written a play with another guy. And the job we got was as writers on Seinfeld at the very beginning. And our submission was a little play, but I had been a stand-up comic and I had the eyes of people like Jerry Seinfeld as an opening act and as a touring comic. So they were looking for some funny as a big part of it, but it was a complete lottery win to move into television off of that. 
So was Larry David in the room? Yeah, it was Jerry and Larry from the get-go, and they're quite a combination. But it took them both to make that happen. And people can tell a little bit what Larry's made out of by watching Curb Your Enthusiasm because he's not far from that character. He thinks and acts that way. So I don't have anything disparaging to say about him. It's all there on the surface. I was just watching it last night, actually. I was watching season 11 where he goes and he pitches his show to Netflix. I don't know if you watch I mean, I, I like a good comedy of manners. I really do. So it comforts me that I no longer live in Los Angeles. I lived there for four years when my husband was at UCLA becoming a doctor. So I watched the Larry David show and it, it makes me laugh. And it also makes me relieved that I live in Brooklyn. Brooklyn seems like a very, very artistic place. We talked to a lot of people from Brooklyn that have a very creative life. Yeah, and no shade on L.A. I mean, my husband's from L.A. I lived there. I got a lot of writing done there, but I was a weird transplant there. Well, I moved there from the Midwest, and what I found that was most interesting was everybody I hung out with or I liked or I spent time with had come from the Midwest. Where in the Midwest? Well, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, but my friends were from Minneapolis, from Chicago. There was something about the Chicago actors. They really worked hard. When they auditioned, they did it for real. And I felt like, and again, not to disparage LA in some weird stereotype, but I felt like everybody there was interested in becoming famous and becoming a movie star where they thought, oh, they're going to edit this together. Where the people who came from Minneapolis and Chicago, they were used to doing a play. You have to act for a few hours and it's a runaway stagecoach. You can't get off of it and go, I'll be in my trailer and then I'll do 10 takes of this. When you deliver a play, it's yours up till then. Then the director babysits it for a couple of weeks and then the actor rides the horse to the finish line. There's nothing like it. And I miss Chicago theater a lot because of that sense of doing it for the sake of it. You know, not doing it because you might become famous, doing it for the ensemble. And there's not enough ensemble theater in other cities these days. I mean, in New York, it's really dwindled. So I don't know, maybe because I'm from Chicago, I idealize it. But I agree when I was in L.A., I would also gravitate towards those folks. Well, let's talk about a couple of other things. I want to talk about your new book, which is called Smile, A Story of a Face. And maybe I'll let you set it up as opposed to projecting on it, because it's a really powerful book and it's very personal and vulnerable. So maybe based on the title, tell the audience a little bit of what the journey is there in search of finding your voice. Sure. So I had a difficult pregnancy with my twins 12 years ago. The story sort of begins there. I had a play on Broadway, then I was put on bed rest. The pregnancy was quite scary. I wasn't sure if the babies would survive. They did survive and that was miraculous. And then I got a condition called Bell's palsy, which is the paralysis of this nerve, the seventh cranial nerve on the left side of my face. And for most people, it goes away really fast. It's like a viral weird thing that comes and goes in three months. And for some percentage of people who have it, it just keeps going and going and going and you don't know why. So for me, it just kept going and going and going and I didn't know why. So the book is an exploration of what it was like to not be able to show much emotion on my face, what it was like to not be able to smile at the babies, what it was like to have something of a public life in theater and not be able to smile for pictures. I had a Tony nomination and went to the red carpet. They're like, smile for your picture. And I was like trying to smile and they're like, what's wrong with you? You know, can you smile for your Tony award? And I was like, I, I, my face is paralyzed. And you know, then I felt guilty because I'd sort of shamed them. So the book is ostensibly about that, but also I suppose about a kind of spiritual pilgrim's progress out of a place of despair to another place by the end of the book. 
Well, I found it intriguing about the struggle between your interior feelings and your exterior expression, how much we take a smile for granted and how important it would be for new babies, for a mother to be able to show them joy. And there was something in there you talked about having to do it more tonally with your voice and find a different way as opposed to where everybody's playing peekaboo with their baby and it's all facial expressions. And I can't imagine how frustrating that not only is, but continues to be. And then they introduce an idea like Zoom where your face is like, nobody wants to see anybody's face for as much as we're seeing everybody's face. But if people are trying to decide if you approve of them or if you like their performance or something, it must be an interesting continued conflict. The Zoom is, I mean, it's really something if you have Bell's palsy. I mean, it's interesting because in a way it's like exposure therapy. It's like you have to look at your face. However, I will say like right now, I just have another window open. So I'm not looking at myself because I hate looking at myself while speaking. I hate watching myself in the mirror eating. And my face or the Bell's palsy is I'd say 70% better for me, but still there's some self-consciousness looking at my own face while I'm trying to perform activities. So Zoom is like being put in the water and being told to swim. You kind of just do it. And I was talking to another person I met through the book who has Bell's palsy and she was having to do some kind of public speaking recently. I was like, you know, I don't want to do it. And I was heartened by your book in terms of getting out there and doing it. And I think that what I came to realize was that the smile, the muscles on your face, it's really all about function at the end of the day, more than vanity. And if you can get across your intention, that's wonderful. I mean, I think it was when when things were really hard for me was when I felt like people couldn't read my affect or intention. And that's not my situation anymore. And I know for some people, it's really, really hard. Well, let me just say, I can see you, the audience can't, but you're beautiful. And I think that your ability with words is, I'm sure, the saving grace because it reflects in the book. You're very communicative about your emotions and feelings. And I imagine your sense of humor has not been denied. And also, it's a real gift to be able to be self-reflective. And as you said, help others. When people read this book, you are lifting them out of a place where they're concerned for other reasons of vanity that don't involve Bell's palsy. Motherhood alone can change your body and your face. Self-love, I think, is a critical part of survival, right? It's interior. Yes. I think what you say about humor as resilience is really important. And also the idea of Bell's palsy at the end of the day in the book, it's a reality, but it's also a metaphor for any reason your external reality doesn't match your internal one. There could be so many reasons for that. There could even be a disconnect where outwardly you look really happy and gorgeous and inside you're suffering. And I think for a lot of young girls on Instagram, people are wondering, you know, why are these girls so depressed? Why is Instagram leading them down this dark hole? And I think it's a lot of this kind of narcissistic culture where your your image is becoming detached from your inner lived experience. So I think there's some knitting together of the inner and the outer that our culture needs to do. Yeah, I think that's a tremendously powerful statement, and it's just reality. I will catch myself having done some social media, whatever, I go, what just happened to that 20 minutes? I don't feel better for it. It's not like, oh, good, I learned a lot of stuff. It's basically robbing from yourself because you feel, why I feel lousy is I feel like I'm the head of a gang that just stuck me up and took 30 minutes of my time when I should have been writing. Nobody else's fault but my own, and I think we just have to find that balance. 
I think truly writers are the last people who should have social media, and yet we're sort of encouraged to do it. I sometimes find out that a former student has had a baby, and then I get happy. So there are those moments. Well, you said that art is a way of freezing time and extending time in an, another way to bridge the gap between us. I thought that was an amazing statement I didn't want to leave out today, because we are freezing time. Whether you're an artist illustrating and leaving something or you're writing a play and taking all of this artifice away and sitting an audience down to have an experience. Those moments of encapsulating emotion and having this shared experience is, to me, when it's very successful, is when they go home and it creates more dialogue. I feel like art I love the most is an opening rather than a closing. It opens people, it opens them to want to make their own art to be in dialogue with another piece of art rather than creating a sense of admiration or distance that people feel more open to each other in the world. Well, your book, Smile, is an invitation for folks to look inward. And I think it speaks to what we were just talking about. And if that opens a door for them, I think the last book that had this kind of power that I read, which was quite a long time ago, Zig Ziglar, who was a positive thinking guru and really quite a great speaker, he had always talked about the power of positive thinking from a place that he was sort of a salesman of this. But then he had a tragic fall down a set of stairs and hit his head on some marble floor, which created a headache injury that really, really challenged him to walk the walk of his positive thinking. And his daughter co-wrote a book with him called Embrace the Struggle, I think it was called. But the subtitle was Living Life on Life's Terms. And I think that's, again, there's not a direct comparison, but it's very much what your book speaks to me about. Life is going to deal you these cards and you're going to play these cards that you have in your hand. Yeah, the body is unpredictable and it's suddenly you wake up and your body's not the same for, for one reason or another and your mind has to adjust. It's a pretty mysterious thing about the human condition. Well, the other book we talked about briefly earlier, I want to give the audience the title so that they know, 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write. And you talk about, it says on the outside, umbrellas, sword fights, parades, dogs, fire alarms, children, and theater. Each one of these essays is very thought-provoking. And I love essays myself because it means you don't have to sit down and read the whole book. You can go, I'm in the mood for this. Or my dad used to take books in the bathroom. I didn't know why. I know now. Yes, this is a great bathroom book. You can just read one essay stay at a time. Are you working on another big narrative right now that you are wrestling every day? Well, I have a play that's coming to Lincoln Center in the fall called Becky Nurse of Salem about the Salem witch trials, but it's kind of a comedy about the Salem witch trials, about a contemporary woman who works at the Salem Witch Museum, and she's a distant relative of Rebecca Nurse, who was one of the women who was put to death. And she goes to a local witch to try to make her life better, and things just keep getting worse and worse. So I'm working on revisions of that. And then the other thing I'm working on is this galleys for this book, Love Poems in Quarantine. When we were on lockdown and the theaters were shut, and so all of my projects were completely on hold, I wrote one haiku a day just to kind of mark the time. And they're about all kinds of quotidian subjects. It's almost like a book of days, how that year unfolded. Well, I wish you well on that. And I want to thank you for all the work that you've brought into the world. I mean, I know that your children are your best works of art, but... John Updike said that the artist brings something into the world that didn't exist before, and they do it without destroying anything else. And I think that's the coolest part of it. Your research that you do on your work and the new perspective you bring to things like the witch trials, it's enlightening. So thank you for uh, offering that engagement to so many people in the world. 
Thank you so much. What a pleasure to have a virtual meeting with you. And speaking of my kids, I'm going to go home to them, but it was great to meet both of you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare.